Welcome to the Onassis Air Conversations. My name is Mirto Katsimicha. I'm a curator and cultural worker based in Athens and your host in this series of recorded encounters with the participants of Onassis Air. Founded on the principles of learning and doing with others, Onassis Air is an international research residency program in Athens initiated by the Onassis Foundation in 2019. They say that what happens in one place stays in that place. I cannot find a better way to describe all the things that have been happening inside the Onassis Air House since I first entered as a participant of the Critical Practices program in fall 2019. The truth is, it is not easy to transmit an open-ended process of relationing which is very personal and relevant to a specific place and moment in time. How can I then give you a glimpse into that process? Everything starts with a conversation. Throughout this series, I'll be speaking with the Onassis Air participants to shed light on their artistic practices and needs, as well as to reflect on ways of being and working together. In this conversation, I'll be speaking with Samuel Hertz. Sam is a Berlin-based composer, sound artist and researcher working at intersections of sound, sonic centralities and climate change. He is currently a participant of the School of Infinite Rehearsals Movement 3, with a collective research focus on ecologies as well as human and more than human interactions. Today, we will talk about the notion of sonic ecology by discussing his research practice, where he investigates the connections between sound and climate through an emphasis on geologic, geographic, ecologic and social listening practices. Sam, welcome to Palidum. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sam, as an artist and researcher, one of your prime interests is sound and the ways sound allows for an embodied cognition of our relationship with the world as well as into hearing practices as a material engagement with our environment in human and non-human scales. How did you develop this interest? Yeah, for me, um, I mean, my, my background is as a composer, as you said, and I initially came to this work in graduate school, uh, working in electronic music composition, uh, studying mainly with Pauline Oliveros and Maggie Payne, who are two... Uh, American composers who are very influential in my, in my let's say, education. And the reason they were very influential has to do with a couple different approaches to sound that I kind of fostered through studying with them. One comes more from Pauline's um, background, which has to do with this notion of deep listening, which is a kind of very... Uh, I mean, it's a particular practice that has um, that's instantiated somehow in training, but in my kind of more informal understanding of it, it's a bit more of an embodied encounter with the world around you as a kind of listening apparatus and understanding listening as a sort of holistic function that happens with and in communication with environments and other listening bodies around you. And through Maggie Payne, who is a, another composer at Mills College, where I studied, uh, with Maggie, I focused a bit more actually on the kind of importance of the role of the body and the physical 
practices of listening that are involved in how we understand the world around us in a very in very like discrete and concrete ways and through the combination of both of those through a kind of focus one in in terms of acoustics physical acoustics and two understanding physical acoustics and environmental acoustics as a sort of embodied approach that kind of eventually led me to to engage with uh the listening environment around us and then kind of transferring from there to environments as a whole. Like how, how do we understand environments around us through embodied listening practices and through kind of acoustics practices. And in that way, seeing the human body as a kind of nexus for physical and somatic understanding. Uh, in your practice, you employ sound and performance as strategies for broadening our sensitivities. And while you were talking, I was also thinking about the notion of touch and specifically um, the way that it has been expressed by Karen Barad as a vehicle to accept and approach the, perhaps the infinite alterity of the self. And uh, I'm talking a bit about the the understanding that we are all entangled into relations of becoming, essentially constantly transforming, and by exploring these other sensibilities, we are experiencing this infinitude of the world as it constantly unravels in the present. And I was wondering, how do you approach the materiality of sound within your practice? For me... Um It was kind of eventually through these studies of acoustics, the kind of physics of it, and, and Karen Barat also definitely figures into to this, uh, like you said, with the notion of touch. I mean, sound uh, and listening properly is actually a, is a, is a physically is a physical phenomenon of touch, essentially. I mean, with the, because of how our sense of hearing is located, we understand them as being slightly separate things. So my resting my hand on my knee is distinctly different than me hearing the sound of your voice. But uh, somehow we can also understand those perceptive mechanisms as being very similar. And uh, this, a lot of this also comes from the work of another um, composer from the U.S. whose work I'm very indebted to, Marion Amache, who did a lot of work in, uh, around one specific phenomenon called autoacoustic emission, which is the fact that your ear is also producing sound at the same time as you're hearing. So in the same, at the same time as we're being kind of constantly touched by sound, uh, we're also producing it at the same time. So earlier when I said that the body turns into a little bit of a nexus between this sort of embodied approach and the physical uh, touch of sound, Uh, this is true in a double sense, in the sense that we're actually co-creating with environments because the way that we're hearing, uh, cochlear hearing, um, we're, the sounds that we're perceiving are, are, happen basically in conversations with sounds that, are, that come to us or sounds that, that touch us. And for me, this becomes really an important baseline for the, where, the, the, the place where I kind of take my understandings and research of sound after that. So if we understand that sound and listening properly and being touched by sound is a co-creative act, uh, 
and one that can be understood uh, somatically also as touch and sensually as touch rather than pretending that we're basically microphones walking around in a, in a, in a free-floating world. For me, that becomes a really interesting baseline to start considering uh, political materialities of sound or environmental materialities of sound when we talk about uh, fields like bioacoustics or, yeah, again, in this political realm coming from publications of people like Brandon LaBelle who talk about this the political affect of sound. So for me, it's also kind of this, it's essentially this notion of uh, touch that kind of puts all of this into frame as being not something that happens to us, uh, not something that simply touches us, but that we kind of reach out and touch as well. And that becomes incorporated also in how we understand sound as mm, touched and touchable. Mm. <laughs> uh, I yeah. think that this um, symbiotic relation that we are talking about, um, all this affective um, approach to the way that we live, um, ties to also the program that you're part of right now, but also the, the issues that you're exploring in climate change that we will talk about uh, in a bit and the way that you approach that through your practice. But I would like to go back to the School of Infinite Rehearsals um, and its title is Everything Equally Evolved. And in one of our previous uh, chats together, you were telling me about how we can define sound as something that... Um, uh, that it uh, moves... How, how did I say it, it before? It moves, uh, <laughs> moves equally, equally in all directions at the same speed, basically. Yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So um, the School of Infinite Rehearsals is conceived as an interdisciplinary collective research, research program. And uh, Movement 3 has a collective focus on the issues of ecologies. And I would like to know, how did you decide to apply for the program? Yeah, my initial impulse to apply for the program was kind of twofold. One, based on the kind of broad notion of, of ecology in the sense of meaning, I, I don't believe that the words are synonymous, but in, this, in the kind of popular understanding of ecology, meaning environment, which is, uh, I think we've done a nice job in our group of complicating <laughs> these ideas. But um, it's, if for, for a while now, I've been working with the idea that's, that sound... Uh, provides sound can function as a very powerful tool for understanding environmental concerns and uh, also thinking about what uh, or I would say simultaneous to that there's this notion uh, in the in sound studies called sonic ecology and this has to do it's very it's also a very broad term but starts to encompass not only literal ecological frameworks of sound I environmental but the ecology of sonic practices or ecologies of listening strategies, and those are quite close to me. And uh, I saw those reflected uh, possibilities to, to pursue that type of research reflected in the, in the sort of collective research statement that was put out by the call. But secondly, particularly because of the 
uh, in conversation with with James, the the emphasis that he's putting on the way that right now that he's kind of thinking about the ecology of technologies. So I mean, he talks about uh, and 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 in other work from other theorists like Isabel Stengers, who are talking about uh, ecology of practices, for example, or he, what James is referring to is. Uh, also, I think from another researcher whose name I'm now forgetting, the idea that each field kind of realizes what its own ecology is, and that uh, technology maybe is a field which hasn't quite realized fully its own ecology. And embedded with that is a, it's that so that's I see that as quite related to a lot of work I'm doing right now, research-wise and also in performance practice about the field of bioacoustics. And uh, there we see a really interesting combination between technological apparatuses, scientifically, the scientific technological apparatuses of measuring environments, measuring critical ecologies, understanding how interspecies and interspecies communication works and how those reflect changing environments. And this is kind of a technological procedure which is really bound in a lot of very interesting and more meta conversations on the use of technology to track living environments and how we understand the essentially the ecology of that technology to be sort of woven into the fabric of our everyday lives or our Anthropocene lives, if you want to use this word. And so in this in that kind of double way, the James's uh, approach to what an ecology of tech of the technological apparatuses or technological lived lives would be also was uh, very interesting for me to reconsider how I was already thinking about technology uh, and somehow it was maybe a bit of a positivist sense and critique it or re-articulate it within bounds of people within very, with very different uh, practices to see how those ideas uh, could be fleshed out somehow. I was thinking about the, the essay that you just mentioned. It also speaks about the, the need to suspend this one truth that science usually have, and understanding a more um, the um, synapses between the different disciplines or with the complexities within one discipline and how we, um, at least now, we are in need of in deconstructing this epistemological canon that um, um, has been there for so many years and um, trying to find how we can better collaborate together to get a better understanding of the world and also to get us through all these um, destructive changes that the world is going through. Mm. And... Um, your essay, The Big Bang and What We Left Behind, was particularly enlightening to me. Uh, it was the fact that through this careful study of our sonic environments, we can allow also for a different conception of time. Um, the one that doesn't allow, the, we, we're not waiting for a, a future to come uh, and for the loss but actually um, the process of losing is happening in an ongoing present, which I think is very important uh, in what we're experiencing right now. 
But let's go back to your collective research here and the time that you've been spending as a group. Um, as far as I know, you decided to focus on water and water bodies. Water is one, perhaps one of the very first indicators of climate change on a global scale. And we hear a lot in the news about um, the fact that the sea levels are rising, while in the case of the lakes or the rivers, we observe the opposite. And at the same time, water analysis show us high levels of toxicity in the water. So it's uh, for sure a collective concern, but I would be interested to know how did you decide to work with water as uh, a group and how did you make actually this decision together? Yeah, it came up in a really interesting way and quite early, I think, in our group's conversations that we sort of, I can't, I can't really remember its sort of origin point, but it came up in a conversation and I think we kind of put an asterisk next to it to say, to flag it and say this seems to be something that's kind of occurring in all of our work. And um, after kind of visiting it a bit more, realizing that even though maybe our individually, some of our particular practices don't deal directly with water. I mean, I can say personally, it's, um, it's an issue I've dealt with tangentially through some of my research and have one kind of particular pra um, project, which is a collaboration between myself and Christina Gruber called Zugzwang. We've we had an installation which kind of dealt a little bit with, I mean, it, it's, it's water-based uh, essentially, but um, that's kind of actually a bit more from Christina's side as she's a freshwater ecologist and I'm a composer. So, um, we kind of, uh, so that's, that's one kind of personal engagement with it, but suffice it to say that I haven't been dealing as with water as my main research practice, let's say, but as a group, we kind of came to it actually through the realization or a kind of like, uh, thorough investigation of the properties of water and in, in, in looking at what the different properties of water are from a very abstract sense. I mean, you can, or you can talk about it concretely. You can say it's wet, it's a liquid. It has, it can change states. It can become gas. It can become solid. Therefore it's formless, but also somehow bounded. And we began to follow this kind of thought process and really quickly in a, you know, kind of giant brainstorm of, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 different properties, began to understand that those material relations we could all relate, uh, all relate to directly in some way from our individual practices. And the more we kind of honed in on what our, A, our, our personal interests would be following that those kind of, um, uh, qualitative impulses, let's say, and be what that could mean collectively as a group to all sort of focus on the same object, but from very different angles, we decided that that would be a very interesting way to start pursuing the research. So kind of led from there, led us to a lot of very interesting places. What water quality resonated with you? Yeah, I became particularly fascinated by, I think it was from the text of uh, Astrid Niemannis, who's talking about the need to basically like consider the hydro the hydrologic cycle as being a very complex uh, 
cycle and, and sort of I'm doing heavy scare quotes. The, the the understanding is that, I mean, we're taught in school that, you know, it rains on the ocean and then it's, some rain gets on land and then it gets evaporated back up into the sky. And it's kind of a really easy circle. So you just understand that water kind of moves in a circle rapidly. Uh, and it's it quickly becomes clear that, A, that's not really how the cycle works. It's it, Maybe you could consider it to be a very broad cycle where things move generally in a cyclical pattern but it doesn't really actually bear out to be the case and there's a lot of sort of cyclical components within this broader cycle water also can stay still in reservoirs for millions of years so if you consider like a single water molecule let's say it's not guaranteed that it ever actually completes a capital full cycle, let's say. It can get stuck in a reservoir. It can be continuously caught between precipitation and transpiration for also thousands of years. Maybe it never becomes saline water. Maybe it's constantly being filtered or something like this. And for me, uh, this is not really sound related, but in the same sense, it led me to a similar type of temporal understanding as I approach with the the way that I speak about how sound kind of reveals new temporal layers through scientific studies like the field of bioacoustics. In the same way, complicating the hydrologic cycle for me is a similarly interesting way to think about what's the sort of time scale of movement of this very, very large and present mass on earth i.e water how is it how is it moving around or mostly it's not moving actually also 0.0005 percent of water on earth is actually moving at any moment in time which a makes you realize just how uh, much water there's not a better way to say it there's a lot of water on the surface of the earth and uh, and and under the surface and b the huge kind of temporal scale of what we consider to be a cycle is is actually stretching far beyond what we what are the visible uh, and tangible moments of let's say human access to the hydrologic cycle which is mostly going swimming or getting caught in a rainstorm or seeing fog this is the very very small percentage of what's kind of going on it's the easiest for us to latch onto because it's kind of the most available to us sensually but it's kind of occult what's the what's actually happening this sort of grand scalar movement that's happening a bit behind the scenes that i think is really important for understanding things like notions of deep time for me that that's why this complication is uh, incredibly important for me. And how did you proceed with um, researching this, the subject and all the complexities of water? What, uh, what path did you take as a group? Mm. Yeah, we, we've, done a num- we've done a number of things. I mean, the, the sort of main... I would say the way that we started was also by understanding what these qualities were. We sort of dove into them a bit deeper and in a way explain to each other what our particular interests were also in terms of working on the publication um 
delineating like what might be our particular interests and also expressing to the group what our kind of inroads are. Um, following from that impulse, we also felt essentially it came to the idea that we it was going to be really hard to do this research in Athens, which of course there's water here and 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 within Athens. I'm sure that there's a huge amount of water politics going on, but we sort of came to the idea that we wanted to be a bit more immersed. And of course, it's a very weird time to be in, in the city. It's exactly. impossible to travel. And there's a lot of really interesting water components in the city in particular, but it was just actually harder, in a weird way, harder to reach them than it was to leave the city. So we kind of followed that impulse to figure out where's a place where we could go where sort of all of our individual perspectives on on the interest of water-based research would be like where where reflects that interest personally and then also collectively where is a place we could go where we could also be immersed as a group to not only do kind of field work in the sense of observing and sampling and these sorts of things but also to do an immersion with each other to share practices to develop tools and methods with each other and yeah so we came upon Crespes. A trip is always a good idea. (laughs) Uh, Crespes which is in the north of Greece and uh, there are also a lot of um, socio-political issues around these two lakes because uh, the Greater Prespa is divided between three countries. Um, so what? how, how long uh, did you spend there and what exactly did you do there? We were there for uh, a week. A week. Um, and we kind of, we made a bit of a schedule for ourselves in a way. I mean, we we felt because, as as you just mentioned, it's quite a politically and socially complex place, being that it sits on these three borders, which are also very fluid borders. Um, we initially felt that, well, not initially, we felt and continue to feel that it would, we needed to meet people. There, I mean, it would also be inappropriate to show up and just start looking at water because that's also water would conveniently cover a lot of the political issues that happen there. And in fact, is very ingratiated in the political issues. So we wanted to deal with those at the same time. We, um, we managed to meet with a lot of really interesting people there that kind of covered also a sort of broad overview of what our particular interests would be. We met people like... Uh, biologists, um, people involved in conservation work, uh, a mycologist, these sorts of, um, uh, as well as as well as the Stefanos, who who's sort of based there, but had done a lot of work about like border conflicts and these these sorts of things. So we wanted to get kind of a very broad spectrum, and then beyond meeting people and talking to them there we also were generally kind of exploring the area and getting tips from locals on where to go to visit very specific uh, locations the 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 area Prespis is a very it's it's a national park 
And the national park exists on the Greek side, but is shared between Albania and North Macedonia as well. Um, and it's a very, very specific ecology that's comprised of these two lakes, which also kind of exist in a sort of lake network that extends further north, which is par partially where this political, uh, where the political enters in a way. And uh, around the ringed uh, on the lakes is a wetlands, which is a sort of very fragile ecosystem uh, and very particular to that area. And this was sort of a big focus because it's a very easy place to see where very conflicting conservation rules and regulations uh, get played out basically in, in real time in front of your eyes. So we did a lot of exploring of the of the wetlands, of the lakes themselves, and the sort of mountain regions that are surrounding. Hmm. You mentioned the borders, and um, I also had the chance to listen to your discussion with Stefanos. We were talking about Stefanos Lovidis, who is a researcher. And in, his, in your discussion with him, um, I remember this very interesting point that he made, that the borders are also kind of indicators of the climate change. Because when the, sea, the lake level um, goes down because of the climate change, new lands are revealed. And these are kind of contested lands because they are in between these borders. And this takes me back to your research into climate change. And I was wondering if there was you know, a particular interesting finding for you in, uh, in this region. Mm. Um, where where I started to take a lot of interest is precisely in the in the realm of kind of border, I would say struggles, but it's not that the borders are being actively struggled over right now, but let's say the way that uh, problematics that are related to conservation issues or issues resulting from climate change can be complicated by by borders. And that's something that also, in terms of sound, coming from my personal practice, is also kind of hard to articulate in a way. But then in the same, kind of in the same sense as I was mentioning with the hydrologic cycles, for me it also is something that bears a particular relationship to time, particularly in the way that conservation management works, because it's quite time related i mean it's about the understanding of yearly populations returning and and again understanding uh the way that if uh, these specific ecologies should happen in a cyclical way we had a really interesting talk with a biologist there who who explained to us that in wetlands uh i don't know exactly why i thought this way but it was a conception in my mind that water levels should remain quite uh, even. But it turns out for wetlands, it's actually helpful to encourage biodiversity there that they're sort of fluctuating all the time, which doesn't also mean generally decreasing, which is obviously quite bad. But in the sense that these ecologies should also be kind of fluctuating on, in cyclical ways, you can see over longer periods of time the fact of their kind of slow degradation or slow loss and that's accounted for essentially by by conservation techniques so for me the, you can see like the wetlands in particular there as being a very interesting 
meeting point of uh, border politics and seeing conservation wrapped up actually in issues of uh, nationalism, what animals are protected because they're meaningful to a sort of sense of national pride, how much does water need to be regulated in the region because actually the water from the Great Prespa is being lost to North Macedonia but is controlled, the flow to that lake is actually controlled by the, the minor Prespa, which resides totally in Greece. So in a way, Greece has a little bit of control over how much water can be leaked into North Macedonia, and then it becomes really a, a border issue that's maybe tied in with conservation issues, but you can understand that it suddenly gets a little bit complex when your conservation issues also... Uh, can be easily mismatched on the other side of the border where they're trying also probably to preserve very particular water levels. Where my It sounds is, very yeah. complicated. Yes. <laughs> uh, did you make any uh, field recordings there? Yes, I have um, a number of really nice sounding recordings, particularly from the wetlands, which are kind of immense. I mean, we were even there, you know, in... Um, in now in, in March, which is not such a, it's it's not really into far into spring yet, and the weather there is still quite cold. It was snowing for most of the time that we were there, but even then in the wetlands, you can hear an enormous diversity of kind of wetlands creatures moving around. Birds, of course, but also more than birds and humans too. We're also in this recording. I'm very jealous. Yeah. I'm looking forward to to listen to that. But we are uh, nearly in the end of our discussion, and uh, I'm curious to know what's next for you. Um, yeah, I'm right now. Um, currently, I would say I have like two kind of major active uh, projects. The first one is a kind of ongoing. Um, research project with also a performance output which is called Librations and happens with my collaborator Carmelo Pampolonio who's based in the US and um, Librations is kind of a it's it's a project that that happens the the sort of basis of it is producing what's called an earth moon earth moon bounce which uses uh, radio telescopes to balance essentially off the surface of the moon, um, radio transmissions that, that we develop here. And this, this is a project which has been ongoing since 2019, actually. Uh, we had a kind of premiere of, the, of a performative version of it in early 2020, but the research is kind of ongoing as we're collecting more and more partners. And it's a really fascinating uh, research project which touches actually, I mean, you mentioned earlier Karen Barad, and it's uh, really, uh, in a way, based off of a lot of the flip side of this notion of touch that, that we were talking about earlier, as in touch in the sense of being in physical contact. And Karen Barad actually sort of complicates that and says we're never really actually in physical contact. It's all a sort of like molecular repulsion and... Uh, And we kind of work with this idea of communication over very, very large distances and literally using the moon as a reflector and a sort of collaborator in a way. 
we like to speak about the sensual identification with electromagnetics and the possibilities or impossibilities of touch and what it means to be touched or not touched at these very long distances at the speed of light, you know. So that's a that's that's one ongoing project, and the second one is um, has been ongoing for quite some time as well, which is a bit more based on the research I've been doing on a sort of more artistic side of bioacoustics uh, research, which is a, a collaboration with uh, my collaborator Leighton Lachman in Berlin, which is called Doom. And Doom is a sort of four-headed uh, doom metal band that we've created, which is using, I guess we're kind of making a compositional environment that is a little bit based or predicated on the scientific methodologies that come from bioacoustics. So understanding how things, uh, which is also comes out of a little bit this essay of mine that you referred to earlier, the Big Bang, thinking about how to, what are ways that we can attune our senses of uh, listening and sight and touch to detect very slow changes happening over long periods of time. And it just happens through some research I was doing that I came upon doom metal and drone metal as a kind of performance strategy for this very, very heavy low and deep sounds that evolve very slowly, but in a very kind of sonically oppressive environment that really force you, force your body to feel the changes happening. And because of the kind of immense power of the sound, it's truly embodied. And the smallest change can mean, can already give your body so much information and for me, that really actually gets to the heart of what, if I can prescriptively aim for bioacoustics to, 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 let's say, educate about, is to be able to understand very, very small changes as being in and of themselves quite significant. I think we need to develop other, uh, and other conceptions of, um, of the sensations that you are talking about, because... The only the only time I I think I had this kind of deep listening or I don't know how to describe this sensation, uh, but it relates to sound is um, while an earthquake is happening mm -hmm. because it's it's just before it starts happening that the earth vibrates and somehow you feel it and then it happens and of course you can you can hear. Uh, you can hear it more clearly. But I'm thinking, why do we have to wait until it happens to get this kind of uh, sensation? Mm. And earthquakes are a really good example because there's a very famous, I want to say it's called the Cyclorama. It was an exhibition that opened in London in the 1800s. I'm going to really have to fact check these dates. But it was uh, it was kind of the first or one of the first like surround sound multimedia performance experiences where they tried to basically recreate the Lisbon earthquake of 1755. I, that could be right as a date. Let's see. Um, 
but they basically understood actually uh, to communicate the terror of an earthquake. Basically, they kind of made this sort of uh, almost operatic recreation of it where they were re really literally vibrating the seats and like sending smoke in the room and they had this kind of panoramic painting with holes cut in it so you could see flames behind it and they really understood actually like vibration that you need to in order to communicate the seriousness of these kind of earth magnitude phenomenon you also actually need to shake people i mean it's it has to be embodied or else looking at Maybe looking at pictures doesn't quite communicate the extent to which we need to understand the, the scope of what these changes mean for Earth. And the same goes for looking at uh, data, which doesn't mean we shouldn't look at, at graphs that show decline of animal populations, let's say. But there is a somatic dimension, I think, that's very important in kind of fermenting an understanding of what those changes mean to to us and what's the significance of those changes beyond a kind of conceptual understanding of the a loss of numbers i think that if we had a more embodied understanding or a more sensual relation to what loss really means that would shift a lot of the ways that we continue to make let's say even really practical things like climate policy i think those things become a lot more tangible to us when we can feel them i'm very curious to know how does the moon sound like from your experience with the moon sounds or i don't know if i'm getting this correctly <laughs> Yeah, because the part of this uh, Librations project is, is indeed recording, um, but the sounds that we're recording are generally speaking our own sounds that we're sending at the moon and then kind of collaborating, it with, <laughs> collaborating with it in a way, waiting for the sounds to make their return trip. But the particularities of what our, you know, physical position to, to the moon is and where exactly our signals are hitting on the moon and where exactly our receiving station is and the atmospheric conditions between, there's a lot of changes that occur uh, to the sounds that, that return. So while the moon doesn't, let's say, have a sound in and of itself that we're, that, on, on the frequencies that we're listening for, um, it does definitely, as a, as a celestial body in and of itself affects our sound and so bears a kind of sonic signature upon this, the sounds that we work with. Um, well, Sam, it's been a real, really, real pleasure talking with you today and um, thank you for uh, your reflections and sound, materiality, time, space and all these wonderful ideas that you shared with us. Um, I would like to close our discussion by making a very uh, simple, perhaps, question for you as a sound artist, which is, um, what is the most uh, interesting sound that you've ever listened to? Yes, good question. My The answer I'm going to have to go with, one, is that I think it changes all the time, but two, if I'm really thinking about it, I had a very particular experience um i was in 
Iceland on a, working on a residency there, working uh, actually on this essay on the Big Bang. And with my uh, collaborator, Andrea, um, they're doing recordings and documentation for also another publication we wrote at the time. And we were taking basically daily trips out down the fjord. We were living in, in the east of Iceland in Sætisfjordur, which is in uh, one of these sort of glacial fjords um, along a path that's about like 14, mile, 14 uh, kilometers uh, inland. And you can do these really amazing hikes into the fjords around there. And it came uh, one day that we found ourselves at this huge overhang looking straight down into the water. And I could hear these amazing ducks there. And I took me a while to figure out where they were. And it turns out they're actually quite close to me. But the sound I was hearing was a lot of, it's one of their nesting uh, places. And they were in such a huge mass and producing such an enormous volume of sound that wasn't really reaching me directly because I was kind of sitting on top of them. Rather, it was bouncing back across the fjords and it made this like enormous uh, echo, which is like a totally astounding way to hear space. Because you can't really understand that the you can hear the ducks in particular. I mean, you can eventually understand that they're ducks, but it made this like completely mind blowing avalanche of sound. And I have a recording of it, and it totally doesn't sound like I was hearing it in person <laughs> at all. <laughs> oh, it was no. such a like particular psychoacoustic effect that I was like trying to replicate with the microphone. I mean, it's a really great recording, but it doesn't like. It's a, I have to say that it was an ephemeral experience because it, uh, it faded, but it had such this kind of like unendingly powerful avalanche of, of sound, which was happening. You could, cause you can also see this kind of vast space that we are standing in front of, and it really sounded like it. And that's a experience that's hard to, even, even for a, even for a sound artist, maybe hard to replicate. <laughs> that sounds very sublime. Yes, and that would be the word. Yes. Um, well, thank you for, for this memory. And thank you for this uh, discussion. And um, I hope that uh, you come back to Athens very soon. I would love to. Thank you, Merto. Thank you for listening. If you want to listen to more conversations, please subscribe to our channel. You can find more about the UNASSE residency program and each participant at www.onasses.org. This series is produced by UNASSE. Thanks to Nikos Kolias, the sound designer of the series, and to Nikos Liberis for providing the original music intro theme.